listening to the Miracle Word Podcast. We believe that the Word of God gives you the power to experience never-ending increase in every area. If you're ready for revelation that will take you to the next level, you're in the right place. Here's your host, evangelist, author, and founder of Miracle Word University, Ted Shuttlesworth, Jr. This is an interesting topic, by the way. Uh, I'm seeing a lot of comments, and that's why I'm going to deal with this, because we need to understand these things biblically. We do need to understand it biblically. People can get into fear. I want you to hear this. Hey, Ted, Jordan, love you too, buddy. Hilda, Mike LaValle, what's up? Mike Frost, my man, Pastor Alan Meshagan, who I love, and Jenny. Stephen. This is an interesting thought. Got a lot of preachers, a lot of uh, spiritual leaders talking about this. 2020, is God judging America? We're going to talk about it. I'm going to take you through the word of God and show you things that are going to help you to understand. Why do I say it? People get into fear over these things and they don't understand, number one, how God's moving, what he's doing, how things are playing out uh, in America and around the world. And so I'm going to talk to you today from the subject, is God judging America? Um, And if he is, here's the question. Hey, Zach, if God is judging America, how do we avoid that judgment? That's the question. If he is pouring out judgment, how do we avoid that judgment? That's a question. And so what will it take if God's judging America for us to miss out on that judgment? Because by the way, if you go back through the Old Testament, anytime God was going to pour out judgment on a nation or was already doing it, it was never just straight doom and gloom. It was, here's your way out. If you'll do this, if you'll repent, if you'll turn from your wicked ways. That was what was in the Old Testament. So for all these people that are just so sure God's judging America, we're going to cover that and show you from Scripture the answer, the biblical answer. And I'm going to give you some things that you need to consider uh, as a Christian. Consider these things. Good to see Bonnie from Elmira. Senia, good to have you on. So I don't want to waste time. I want to jump in. Um, why is there something on my iPad? No, that's the rain. Tiffany, it's raining hard outside or it was when I pulled up. So sorry. Does it look bad? It's just, it's just, it's literally just rain. It's, it's not, it's not like goo. She said, which, which child got a hold of your iPad case? Uh, no, it's just the rain. Sorry, everybody. It's just the rain. Um, No, it wasn't. Sorry, it just threw the lights. It probably looked like a glitter explosion. Just the rain. Don't worry. Um, (laughs) I wanted to uh, I wanted to put this on. I'm going to give you a couple of things here right at the beginning. We're talking about God's judgment. By the way, if you haven't taken a minute to share it, share it. Um, I want to deal with some things here. Today's broadcast. Number one, the judgment of God. We know God is a righteous judge. No question about it. The Bible teaches God is a righteous judge. Hey, Danielle. But the question is this. We've got to, how do we understand God's judgment? What is he doing in judgment? 
So let me, let me just say, first of all, since we know God is a righteous judge, he's completely and utterly holy. God is holy. And he judges sin, and it's a good thing when he does judge sin. But the first thing I want you to do with me is I want you to look at the five levels of God's judgment or the five forms of God's judgment um, that we can clearly see. And they go from the most severe to the least severe. And so let me put these in real quick. Write them down if you're taking notes because I want you to see it. Five forms or levels of God's judgment. Number one, you've got eternal judgment. That's number one. That's hell, by the way. Eternal judgment. Eternal separation from God himself. Who's that reserved for? People who have rejected Jesus Christ and his redemptive act. People who died in sin and had no ability uh, or had no ability to hear. So understand, that's number one. Eternal wrath. Eternal judgment. That hasn't happened yet for everybody but it will at some time come down for every person. Every person will have to stand before God at some point in their life and give an account for their life. So that's number one, eternal judgment. Number two, what we could call eschatological or end times judgment, like the tribulation. That's not the final judgment, but it is end times judgment. It's what we call end times judgment. The technical term, eschatological judgment. And what is that? That's the day of the Lord. What is that? It is after the church, we believe, after the church raptured from the earth, that a seven-year tribulation will begin. And by the way, as the Antichrist takes power, and of course we know that the whole world will finally follow after the beast, there'll be a one-world government, one-world religion, one-world monetary system, Bible prophesies, uh, and that's end times judgment. By the way, that's not something that is initiated by the devil, by the way, for those that think it is. It's not the devil that initiates end time judgment. It is God himself. There's no way to read the Bible and read prophecy and not understand that the tribulation is the judgment of God upon an earth who have rejected Jesus. All of the judgments that are poured out, what do we have? We have the bowl judgments, the seals, and the trumpets. Bowls, seals, and trumpets. Where are they all? Where are all three of those things? In heaven, the Bible says. The bowls poured out from heaven. The trumpets sound in heaven. The seals opened in heaven. Not on the earth, not in hell. The devil doesn't have the authority to judge the whole earth. It is God himself because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So the second level of judgment is what we could call eschatological or end times judgment. That has not yet happened either. We're not in the tribulation right now. For anybody that was wondering, <clears throat> we're not. The third level is what we could call from the Bible cataclysmic wrath the earth was flooded sodom and gomorrah destroyed you know cataclysmic wrath where god just wipes out 
whole groups of people at once. God wiped out the earth with the flood. It was wicked. Wiped out Sodom and Gomorrah. Couldn't even find 10 righteous people in those twin cities. And by the way, scholars tell us, scholars tell us that those cities were so functional in their time that the population could not have been less than 10,000 people. Couldn't have been less than 10,000 people of the Twin Cities, even then. And God said, look through the 10,000 minimum. See if you can find me 10 people that are righteous. Couldn't even do it. God said their wickedness has brought upon them wrath, judgment. And God judged them, as you know. The angels pulled Lot and his family out of the city. And then God judged the city. That's cataclysmic wrath. That's Old Testament style wrath. That's the third level of judgment from the Lord. Now, the the final two are the two that we're going to talk about today regarding nations and people here in the New Testament time or, or dispensation. Number four is forsaking wrath, forsaking judgment. We'll cover that from Romans chapter one, forsaking God, forsaking men to their own devices forsaking them, letting them do what they want to do in their carnal, sinful minds and bodies. He's forsaken them unto their own actions. He's not withholding them from their wickedness that brings judgment. That's number four, forsaking wrath. And then finally, the number five one that I want you to see is something that we're going to call consequential wrath. You know what that is? Sowing and reaping. I do something sinful and reap a harvest of evil in my life. For example, you know, God doesn't have to judge some things. They carry their own curse. If I just quit being a Christian today and turn into like the New Testament Walter White and start cooking meth in an RV out in the woods and start doing meth and selling meth and shooting heroin, sleeping with prostitutes, When I get an STD and I'm overdosed on drugs, are you going to point your finger at me and say, well, see, God's judging him. No, it's called cause and effect. Consequential wrath. Consequential wrath. I do something. Remember this. As long as the earth remains, there'll be seed time and harvest. Everything you do is a seed. Whatever you release from your life, it's a seed. If I do wicked things... I'm going to reap a harvest of wickedness. Remember what I've been preaching to you, Isaiah chapter 3, verse 10. The Bible says, say unto the righteous, it shall be well with them. And what's the next phrase? For they shall eat the fruit of their deeds. You know what that is? Consequential blessing. I did righteous things. I'm going to get a righteous harvest. It's how God works, seed time and harvest. I did righteous things, I'm going to get a righteous harvest. Let me tell you something. My cousin Jonathan, I couldn't say it any better than he said it, so I'm just going to steal his phrase. You can't put God first and finish last. You can't put God first and finish last. Can't say it better than that. God will withhold no good thing from those that walk uprightly, Psalm 84, 11. You do righteous things, you're going to get a righteous harvest. Matthew 6, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Good things, not bad things. 
Why? If you put God first, you'll never finish last. Because seed time and harvest will always be in effect. Always. Always. So when I say consequential wrath, what I'm referring to is people live wickedly. And as a result, they harvest a wicked harvest in their life. So if I go back to Isaiah and show you the verse right after the one about the righteous, it's a verse about the wicked. Isaiah 3, 11, 10 was about the righteous, 11 is about the wicked. Listen, woe unto the wicked. It shall be ill with him for what his hands have dealt out to others shall be done unto him. So that's sowing and reaping. What you did to others is coming back upon you. Amen. Why? Seed time and harvest is always in effect. Always in effect. What you sow, you will reap. So I want us to understand those things. Eternal wrath, number one. End times wrath, number two. Cataclysmic wrath, number three. Forsaking wrath, number four. Consequential or sowing and reaping wrath is number five. Today, when we're answering the question, is God judging America? We're going to only deal with the final two, forsaking wrath and consequential wrath, because we're not in hell right now. So God didn't send America to hell. We're all still here on the earth. Number two, end times wrath. We're not in the tribulation right now. So we're not experiencing eschatological tribulation wrath. Number three, cataclysmic wrath. Well, what did God say? He would never again destroy the whole earth by a flood. God said, I'm done with that kind of earth-shattering judgment until the end. Right? Until he purifies the earth by fire. By the way, we will never destroy the earth. I don't care how many people litter. I don't care how bad the ozone layer gets. God reserves that right for himself, the Bible says. He will do it. So... If you didn't, if you're just logging on, you haven't shared this yet, this is an important one to share. Is God judging America? We're going to, we're going to deal with this. The forsaking wrath of God. Well, we're going to cover in the scripture what the Bible says when God forsakes people unto their own devices. Go to Romans chapter one, Romans chapter one. And I want you to see this, God's wrath upon unrighteousness, starting with verse 18, Romans 1, 18, listen, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth for what can be known about God is plain to them because he's shown it to them. For what can be seen or known about God is plain to them because he's shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. Paul actually teaches the Romans, no one on the earth has the excuse to say God doesn't exist because creation is proof that there's a creator. Do you know that even scientists are saying now that DNA... DNA is proof of a creator because DNA is a written code. 
And you cannot have a written code or language without a writer. DNA is such an amazing thing. Because if you look at the laws of physics, the laws of thermodynamics, you know what you'll find out? Evolution actually is contradictory to the laws of thermodynamics. What is the second law of thermodynamics? Entropy. You know what that means? It means that things by themselves won't come into order, they'll go into chaos. For example, go to the beach, build a sandcastle, because you're the creator, build a sandcastle on the beach, let it sit for a week. And in a week, after the tides, after the wind, after the normal course of nature, it will not become a more detailed castle, it will actually go to nothing. And that's how, let a city be untaken, let your yard go untaken care of, your landscaping, a city. You go look at a ghost town, a city that's been destroyed by war. After 30 years of sitting, being left to nature, it doesn't get more in order, goes out of order. Stuff's overgrown, there's cracks in the streets, weeds growing up through the cement, all this, why? Anything left to itself naturally goes to chaos. You don't go from chaos to order. And for DNA to be created, a written code, even scientists are saying, has to be a creator, someone that wrote the code, it doesn't occur naturally. So Paul's saying all the way back then, 2,000 years ago, creation is enough for people to have to say, there is a God, there is a God, can't deny it. So go further. Uh, So that these people are without excuse. That's the point I'm making. Verse 21, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. See that? Verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became utter fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for the images resembling mortal man. Now 24 is important. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. So what did he do? He gave them up. Go to verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do whatever ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. And then notice that. When you live in that way, and what does the Bible say? They received the penalty in their bodies that they so richly deserved. So what did God do? He said, all right, if you don't want to listen to me, if you don't want to obey me, if you don't want to understand my ways and you reject me, I'll let you do what you want to do. I will wipe my hands of you and not restrain you and turn you over to a debased mind and let you become whatever you're going to be. And notice what they became. All manner of unrighteousness suffered the penalties in their own bodies. That's forsaking wrath. That is God saying, I will not restrain you and your free will. Go do what you want. Then if you want to be unrighteous, go be unrighteous and watch what happens to someone that rejects my commands rejects my laws. And that's what the people did in, in the Bible, this is New Testament, by the way, not Old Testament. And that's what they did. However, I want to 
make a point here, even though we're talking about forsaking wrath, and then, of course, we talked about consequential sowing and reaping wrath. Let me now give you six Bible reasons why I do not believe America is experiencing the wrath of God. Six Bible reasons why I say no, God is not judging America as a nation. I say absolutely not, he is not judging America as a nation. I'll give you six reasons from the Bible why not. Before I do that, let me say this quickly. In the Bible, Old Testament, you go read through it yourself, there were many times God judged entire nations. Spoke to the prophets, speak to these nations, tell them to repent, tell them to turn back to me. Now remember this, there was no Jesus. The blood of Christ did not exist for any of those people. They were all unrighteous. Even the followers of God were unrighteous. You couldn't be righteous without the blood of Jesus. Their sins weren't removed. They were only covered by the blood. Sins were still there. It's just God looked at the blood instead of looking at their sins. In the New Testament, our sins aren't covered. They're removed. That's the remission of sins, the removal of sins. But notice, God always would spare nations in the Old Testament who repented, even though they weren't righteous. Do you know what God said he was willing to do? He said, I will spare Sodom and Gomorrah if you can find me just 10 people, just 10, just 10, 0.001% of the population. That's it. Then I won't destroy the whole... I will keep the whole cities intact for only 10 people that are righteous who live there. They couldn't even find that. So let me ask you a question. If God was willing, under an old covenant without the blood of Jesus, to spare the most wicked cities, I mean, do you realize we still use the word today, sodomy? Sodomy. Why? Because of Sodom. Those city in the Bible filled with homosexuals. We still use the word sodomy. Sodomites. It's from that story. And God said, I won't destroy it. I'll keep it intact if you find me 10 people that are righteous. In a city of thousands, they couldn't find 10. And there was no Jesus. There was no blood. There was no new covenant. Everything was old covenant. And God said, I'll still spare him. So you're telling me, by the way, I'm going to read you a quote by Paul Washer in a minute, which I believe is totally off the wall, totally off the rails. I'm going to deal with it. You're telling me that God would have spared the most wicked city in history without the blood of Jesus if they just had 10 people, he didn't say, listen, he didn't say the whole city had to repent. He just said, find me 10 righteous people that live in it. I'll spare it. He would do that for them. But you got preachers that are preaching. God's judging America after we have the blood of Jesus. And you've got millions and millions, tens of millions of Americans that are spirit filled New Testament believers 
washed in the blood of Jesus, living in this nation. You're going to tell me God would spare Sodom and Gomorrah. They didn't have to repent. They only had to find 10, 10 righteous people. Did you know that if you did the same math of what God was looking for, not that I'm trying to set this as a, a standard for nations, but if you did the same math, 10 out of a minimum of 10,000 people, do you know all we would need in America to meet that ratio is 350,000 Christians? 350,000. We have far more than that. Far more. Tens of millions of Christians in this nation. You tell me God's going to open up heaven and he's going to send down judgment upon a whole nation of people? It's filled with Christians that are praying? I say no, he will not. I'll go further to tell you this. God's not judging nations right now. We're not living in a time of God's judgment upon the nations. The Old Testament was a time like that. And after the rapture, we'll have another time like that. And at the second coming of Christ, he'll divide the sheep and goat nations and he'll judge them then. But as I'm going to show you in scripture, we're not living in a time right now where God's judging the nations. Can he judge individuals? Yes. We see it in the New Testament. What about Ananias and Sapphira? Judged. Instantly judged. New Testament. They were Christians. Satan filled their heart to lie to the Holy Spirit. And they were judged and both of them taken out instantly. Not by the devil. God judged them. What about Herod who took God's glory? Acts chapter 12. And he was immediately judged, eaten up with worms from the inside out. Judged. God can judge individuals in the New Testament, but he's not judging nations. You know why? Because if he judged nations, the judgment of those nations would bleed over onto the righteous people who live in those nations. And as Paul pointed out to Timothy, we as believers are not appointed unto wrath. That would nullify the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed for you and me if we were forgiven of our sins and our wickedness and our unrighteousness, put in a place of right standing with God, and then God still allowed his judgment to come on us anyway. He would be an unjust God. God would not allow you to receive the benefits of Jesus taking the punishment for your sins and then punish you anyway. That's as stupid as going to a restaurant and then you paying for your meal and after they run your card and give you the receipt, they come back to your table and say, actually, we're going to ask you to pay for that meal again. No, I already paid for it. Here's the receipt. I don't care. You're not leaving this restaurant until you pay for the meal again. No, I don't need to. Got the proof that's already been paid for. I don't have to pay for my sins again. Jesus paid for them. So righteous people are not appointed unto God's wrath. I'm not. Those of you watching uh, in the comments, I want you to write, I'm not appointed unto wrath. I'm not appointed unto wrath. It's not for me. It's not my portion. I'm a righteous person in right standing with God. Jesus took my punishment. It's not for me. It's not for me. Anybody thankful, it's not for you. Amen. Not appointed under wrath. So God would spare Sodom and Gomorrah 
Not if they repented, if they just found 10 people that lived there that were righteous. Now let me, yeah, put it in the comments. I'm not appointed under wrath. Paul wrote that to Timothy. Now I want you to hear this. I don't know if he's a doctor, Dr. Paul Washer, Pastor Paul Washer, a pretty harsh dude, writes on social media, creates his own little graphic for it, and writes this. And I'm going to break this down because it's this stupid. This is how stupid it is. The judgment of God against this nation will not be turned by a more conservative president but by the repentance of its people. (laughs) Okay, if you believe that, let me ask you a question then, if that's the case, that God's going to judge this nation if its people don't repent. Well, let me ask you a question. How many people have to repent to turn the hand of God away from judging America? How many? What percentage of the population has to repent Because you've already got a massive percentage. Did you know 70% of people that that are polled in America, according to the census, claim Jesus Christ is Lord. 70% of America. And they say that they attend an assembly. Now, I don't believe the number's that large. They may say they do. They're probably Easter and Christmas Christians. So I don't believe you got 70% of America that's on fire for God. But 70% identify that Jesus is Lord. Did you know the majority of Americans, over 50%, believe the Bible is the inspired, inerrant word of God? So you're telling me that in a nation that is a Christian nation, and I don't care what President Obama said about it, this is a Christian nation. I don't care what he thinks or what he says. The majority of this nation is is Christian. And so... The question for Paul Washer becomes, how many people have to repent? If you're going to take it back to an Old Testament standard where, you know, the priests could offer sacrifice on behalf of the nation, what are you saying? That Christians have to repent on behalf of a nation? Because that leads you into an extremely heretical position that a person can repent on behalf of someone else's sins. That's a Catholic teaching. We might as well light candles for those that died. We might as well give alms for the dead. Baptisms for the dead. You cannot repent for someone else's sin. I can repent for my sin, which I've done. But I can't repent for the sins of this nation. Let me tell you something. People that are so dumb that they believe COVID is a judgment of God for, you know, the the stance America's taken on abortion. People actually have said that and believe it. Well, you know, America's been cool with abortion and Planned Parenthood and selling baby parts. And now God's judging America with COVID. Look at the people who are dying the most from COVID. People 75 and older. She's saying God got mad. At at abortion in America, so he killed all the old people. Makes no sense. They're not having abortions. They're not even having sex. So people are dumb. God's mad about abortion, so he's killing the old people with COVID. Are you stupid? 
you know, how about use some logical sense? God's mad about abortion, so he burns down by supernatural fire all the Planned Parenthood clinics. Did he do that? No, they're still in operation. We think God is not accurate with his judgment? Well, I meant to hit the clinics and I hit the old people. I don't know what. Stupid. God's judging America with COVID. If that's true, how did Bishop Kevin Wallace get COVID? How did Pastor John Hagee get COVID? You think God's just judging his men of God that are preaching the truth? How'd that happen? No. Because Bishop Kevin Wallace is not a wicked man. He's a holy, righteous man in a preaching machine. Pastor John Hagee's not a wicked man. He's a holy man of God, and he's a, a, a mighty man of God. That's not judging his men with COVID. And so let me show you something. If God's using these things like the fires in California or COVID in America to judge people, then God's an inaccurate judge because his judgment has bled over onto the righteous now. Is John Hagee living in sin? No. Bishop Kevin Wallace living in sin? Are they appointed unto the wrath of God? Let me ask you a question. What do you say to Christians, Christians who have died of COVID? What do you say to them? God was judging, you know, abortion. You just got caught in the crossfire. God's not inaccurate. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter four that the word of God is sharp. It's accurate. It's active. Piercing to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, joint and marrow. The thoughts intents of the heart. That's called accuracy, my friends. God's an accurate God. When Elijah was speaking to God on top of Mount Carmel, did God accidentally send the fire down on the prophets of Baal's sacrifice? Oh, wrong altar. Shoot. Wrong. I meant to do my altar. God's not inaccurate. He judges where he means to judge. And if you're so foolish watching this as a preacher, that you'll preach God's judging America with COVID or he's judging America with fires in California. What do you say to every Christian who's lost their home in the fires in the West Coast? What do you say to Christians who own businesses that were destroyed by the fires in California? God, did, did God just destroy their business even though they're tithers and givers and serve him and live for him? God's not an inaccurate judge. People don't study the Bible and as a result, they don't understand how God's even moving in a New Testament age. He can judge individuals, and he does based upon what they're doing. He's not judging nations. He's not judging nations. Let me ask you a question. If you think God's judging nations, why is it, why is it that in the Old Testament we have all these writings by the prophets, two nations and heads of nations, Turn and repent. What was the whole book of Jonah about? Go to Syria, to the capital of Nineveh, tell them to repent or I'll destroy them. Jonah wanted them destroyed. He said, I ain't going, I'll just destroy them. He was still ticked off after he preached and they repented. He literally sat outside the city and watched to see if God would still destroy it. I hope they didn't repent, man. I hope they didn't repent. It, all the Old Testament, repent or be destroyed. Repent or be destroyed. Your nation's going down. Repent or turn or you'll be destroyed. Okay, we know God did that in the Old Testament. Here's the question. If he's still doing that 
after the blood of Jesus was shed, why did Jesus not have anything to say to Pilate or to any of the other uh, political leaders about the nation turning to God? Why didn't Jesus have anything to say about that? Why did he just focus on the lost sheep and then focus on type and shadow for the Gentiles that would soon have availability to be saved? The Apostle Paul, who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, why did he not ink anything inspired by the Holy Ghost to Rome or to the emperor, telling them, turn the nation back to God, turn the empire back to God, or you'll be destroyed? And Rome was destroyed, but never got any warnings from Paul and never got any warnings from the apostles. They didn't even condemn slavery because it's not the job of the church to dictate political policy. It's the job of the church to preach the gospel and see people turn to Jesus. Peter, the apostle said, judgment begins in the house of the Lord. Judge yourself and you'll not be judged. The reason they didn't condemn these things and the reason that you understand people still use those scriptures to say God's for slavery. It's not that God's for slavery. It's that wicked men were for slavery. But it's not the job of the church to change political policy. Church better vote. If you live in a democracy or a republic, you better vote. Because you do have the right to do that. Christianity in and of itself to change political policy. Jesus didn't try to change it. Let me ask you a question. Did Jesus, at the time Jesus was alive, by the way, the Jewish people, Israel, was occupied by the Roman government. Caesar ran Jerusalem. They had to pay taxes to Caesar. When, you know what they expected Jesus to be? A revolutionary. You know what his disciples thought he was going to do? Set up a political kingdom on the earth and overthrow Rome and toss them out of Israel. Jesus said, you have no idea, do you, why I came? You have no idea. Literally. You have no idea. And did Jesus ever, uh, let me ask you a question. Did Jesus ever organize protests in the streets of the Roman government that was oppressing Israel? Never. Did they have picket signs outside of Pilate's office? They didn't hold protests. In fact, when they asked Jesus, should we pay taxes unto Caesar? He said, give to Caesar what belongs to him, but give to God what belongs to him. He didn't say, no, we should protest it. We should get a militia together. We should try to throw Rome out of the city. He didn't do any of that. He didn't do any of that. And not, neither did he warn their nation to turn or be destroyed. Paul didn't warn the emperor, nor did he warn government officials in Rome to turn the nation, turn the empire, or the judgment of God's coming upon you. He didn't do that. What did he do? Focused on planting churches. Focused on getting people saved, getting people filled with the Holy Ghost, getting the message of Christ around the world. That's what he did. There was no judgment. And let, let me get into these. There was no uh, message of judgment to the nations in the New Testament. It's based on individuals. Christ died for individuals, not nations. Put it in the comments. Christ died for individuals, not nations. Put it in the comments section if you know what I'm talking about today. Christ didn't die for, for nations. He died for individuals. 
So Paul Washer, by the repentance of its people. How many people in America have to repent before God will spare to this quote-unquote judgment? How many people? You know, how about this? If you don't want to have wildfires, don't have untended wild areas where there's dry wood in dry seasons where you end up having things that are not taken care of. (laughs) It's called cause and effect. You know, have you ever seen those signs where there's uh, like national forests where they have the bear, Smokey the Bear, and then they have what level of danger there is that day for wildfires? High level of danger day, it's dry, there's not been any rain in four weeks. A spark could be extremely dangerous today. And then there's other days they turn it to green and it says low. It's called cause and effect. Don't be surprised if you're out there doing dances on I-95 on the yellow lines and you get hit by a car. I guess God was judging me today. No, you're doing something stupid. And so don't be surprised when there's cause and effect that happens in the world. And so I want you to see this now. Six biblical reasons that God is not judging America or the nations right now. Number one, what I read to you regarding forsaking wrath. God just saying, let me forsake them under their own decisions. Let them do what they want to do. I'll turn them over to a debased mind. Romans chapter one. That is not dealing with nations at any point through the context. It's dealing with individual men and women. There's nowhere in the context of Romans 1 that it's dealing with whole nations. It's dealing with people. I could have a neighbor who lives right next door to me that's an atheist, that's, you know, part of the LGBTQ community and an atheist, doesn't care, you know, whatever, supports pedophilia. But that doesn't mean, hear me, That doesn't mean that the curse that's on his individual house and life is going to come on me. I don't believe those things. I mean, what do you think Psalm 91 is all about? What do you think it's all about? A thousand may fall at your side. Ten thousand at your right hand. That's right next to you. Thousand dead next to me, 10,000 on this side, but these things will not touch you. The whole point of Psalm 91 is that judgment may fall, attacks may fall, people that are trying to kill you may come, and other people may be taken out by it. But if you're hidden under the shadow of his wings, they won't touch you. Let me ask you a question Did God judge Egypt? For their treatment of his people? Did he judge them? You better believe he judged them. Judged them with plagues. And the final plague was the death angel. Where God himself sent an angel to murder. I want you to hear this. Don't you think that the death angel was from hell? It was from heaven. Death angel was from heaven. A.A. Allen preached a message one time called God is a Killer. Preached it in London. And if you think that the death angel was from hell or that somehow just, this is how, let me tell you, this is how word of faith people are and charismatics. They got this weird picture of God that he can't judge people individually. They always have to come up with this, this interpretation that, well, when God wants someone judged, he just takes his hand of protection off of them and then the devil can go at them. What do you think? God's hand of protection was on Egypt? 
God's hand of protection wasn't on that wicked nation. Why would God be protecting a nation for a long period of time that's oppressing and destroying his own people? God judged them. When the death angel came, it came down from heaven. It descended. Didn't come from hell, came from heaven and came to murder and took out the firstborn in every house in Egypt. Not just the kids, the people, but the livestock. God sent a death angel, killed the firstborn of the people and the animals. But what does he say to his people? This will be a night you'll remember forever because there'll be such a weeping and a wailing in Egypt that it never has been before, never will be again. It'll be a horrific night. But what does he say? But for you, hallelujah, not even a dog will bark among you. It'll be so peaceful. (laughs) What was the difference? The blood on the door, the blood on the door. That was the difference. The blood of the lamb on the doorpost of their home. And if the blood of a natural lamb could keep a supernatural being out of their home, how much more can the blood of an eternal lamb keep every wicked thing off of your house and away from your children and away from your business? Don't tell me. God's judging his righteous people or allowing his judgment to come around and in and on his righteous people. The moment that one case of COVID came upon a righteous person means it wasn't from God. One, one, the moment the wildfires or any of these things touched righteous people shows you it wasn't from God. Let me ask you a question. When the death angel stalked through Egypt on that night, did he accidentally take out a few Israelites too? He said, oh shoot, there was blood on that door. I wasn't supposed to kill him. Oh well, what's done is done. No, nobody was accidentally killed by God in the judgment of Egypt. God's not an inaccurate judge. I said he's not an, put it in the comments please and and share it again because this needs to be heard. God is not an inaccurate judge. He is a judge, but he's not an inaccurate judge. Put it in the comments. God is not an inaccurate judge. So number one, Romans chapter one does not deal with nations. It deals with individuals. Were Ananias and Sapphira judged by God? You better believe it but they weren't the nation of Israel or the whole body of Christ. They were two individuals that Satan had filled their heart to lie to the Holy Ghost. It's different. Let me ask you, did that same judgment of Ananias and Sapphira come upon the rest of the assembly of the Christians? Did it come on the apostles? No. Came on the ones who trespassed. So understand that. Number two, second reason, God's not judging nations. God's priority is to judge the church, not the state. And he doesn't destroy his church with judgment. He corrects them. He reproves them. It's just like, can you imagine? Let me me say something. Can you imagine me as an imperfect father? Well, I got three kids. 
Can you imagine that my son willingly disobeys me, doesn't clean his room, whatever? And my answer to that as his father is to execute him. Oh, you didn't, didn't put your toys away, huh? Get on your knees, put your hands behind your back. You'll never not clean your room again. Boom! As an imperfect father, and Jesus makes this point, by the way, in Matthew 7. It's not arbitrary. He's teaching you the nature of God. How much more will your heavenly father give good gifts to those that ask him? If earthly fathers treat their children well, how much more does our heavenly father treat his children well? God doesn't destroy his church. He corrects his church. He reproves his church. And he doesn't do it with sickness. And he doesn't do it with disease. And he doesn't do it with destruction. Because we're not appointed under wrath. God's priority is to judge the church, not the state. 1 Peter 4.17 For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first... What will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Judgment begins in the house of God. Catch that. God's present manifestation of judgment is to begin with us first. Before it goes to those that don't obey the gospel. Number three, God sanctifying his church is his focus. It's not judging nations, it's sanctifying his church. 2 Corinthians eleven two, 2. I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you a pure virgin. God's desire is seeing the lost come into the kingdom, not judging nations. See, understand something. When Christ died and shed his blood, it changed and flipped the dispensation. We now live in a dispensation of grace. We're living in a dispensation of grace. God's not judging right now. Nations. He's giving nations an opportunity and the people that live in them an opportunity. If your argument is, well, how come Christians were affected by COVID? How come Christians were affected by wildfires? And if your argument then is, well, they should have been led by the spirit and moved away from California before the fires began. Oh, really? So now I have to relocate every time there's people around me that do wicked things. There's nowhere I could go. Where are you going to go to escape the wickedness? Let me ask you a question. What do you say to people that are living in pagan nations that don't even have the resources to leave those nations? Couldn't leave them if they wanted to. Well, God's just saying, sorry, you just live in a nation that's wicked and you're going to catch the uh, crossfire because I'm going to judge that nation. No. God's not judging his people. And he's focused on consecrating the body, calling people into the kingdom through the work of the church, not judging nations. Yes, individuals, not nations. Number four. This is an interesting one. Exhaustive New Testament word studies do not support God judging nations in the New Testament. Let me give you an example. Of course, I'm sure you know that uh, the New Testament's written in the Greek language. The Greek word for judge is the word krino. 
or a derivative of it is used 182 times in the New Testament. In no instance, not one instance, is the word for judge used to judge nations, but always individuals. The word judge in the New Testament is never applied to nations. It's always applied to individuals. Number two, listen to this. The Greek word for nations in the New Testament, ethnos, ethnos. It's never used in the New Testament in the context of judgment, ethnos. With 168 occurrences of the word for nation or nations, it's never once used in the context of judgment, never. Number three, the Greek word for repentance, metanoia, is never used to speak of nations in the New Testament. No nation during the church age is called to repent, although individuals are called to repent. Doesn't that blow your mind? Judgment's never used in the, in the context of nations. The, the word nations is never used in the context of repentance. And the word repentance is never used in the context of nations. Should show you, when you study how the Bible actually uses its verbiage in the New Testament, it's not like the Old Testament, where nations were called to repent, were judged, not now. Number five, the New Testament does not threaten judgment as a consequence for national sins. You won't find it in the New Testament. Where the nation's being judged for national sins. God deals with individuals in the New Testament. Deals with individuals. That's what I, the point I made before. If God's judging nations in the New Testament, why did the New Testament writers fail to mention it anywhere? Why by the inspiration, why was God so interested in warning nations in the Old Testament to repent? And if he's doing the same thing, why did no New Testament writers write that to nations? Why? Why did they always deal with individuals and those in the churches and those out of the churches? Why? Because it's not the same in the New Testament. New Testament doesn't threaten judgment as a consequence for national sins. Why are the writers so silent when they were so vocal well, God doesn't change. Well, his, uh, let me say, God's nature doesn't change, but his methods do change. Are we still sacrificing bulls, goats, and lambs? No. You know why? Because there's an eternal lamb who was sacrificed once and for all. Thank God we don't have to pull out actual animals and sacrifice them every Sunday for our weeks of, week of sins. God just said, hey, I still expect blood, but I'll let there be eternal blood, the blood of Jesus, not judging nations. I mean, listen, listen to this. Paul used very little, if any, ink on the end of his quill to discuss the morality of the Roman Empire. If God judges nations today, one would think he would have implored the empire to reverse directions, if indeed divine judgment was around the corner, which the Roman Empire fell apart. Listen, his accounts during his imprisonment in Caesar's household, for example, the Philippians, writing to the Philippians, are void, empty of Caesarean moralisms, but rich in terms of evangelization. So Paul focused on evangelizing, not on warning nations of impending judgment. S same with Philemon. You read through his, his writer, writings. Here's an interesting thought. John the Baptist 
rebuked the person of Herod, not the nation of Rome. Think about that. John the, John the Baptist rebuked Herod individually. He didn't rebuke Rome as a nation. That should, that's sobering. That's, that's eye-opening for Christian public servants. Number six, Revelation chapters two and three relate to the church, not to the state. The church. The book of Revelation demonstrates God's concern for the church. Jesus appears to the churches, the seven churches of Asia Minor. That's what Romans 2 and 3 is about. It's not talking about a nation. It's talking about individuals that make up a church body. What's, he's, he's threatening them because they're lacking individually in their personal actions, not their nationwide actions. Notice those chapters, uh, Revelation 2 and 3, they are void of mentioning the sins of any city or state. They don't mention the sins of a city, don't mention the sins of a state, they don't mention the sins of a nation. They, they mention the sins of the people of God that should be serving Him individually. One would expect God would give the same kind of word that He gave to Sodom and Gomorrah. He doesn't. He does not. There's no warning given to the cities of the seven churches. Let me say that again in case you didn't catch it. There's no warning given to the cities in which the seven churches are placed, just to the believers within the churches. Why? God's judging them individually. Let me ask you a question. What if he comes to them and says, I know your deeds, you don't love me like you once did. If you don't return to your first love, I'll return and remove your lampstand from among the churches. What if a church had 50 members 30 of them repented and returned to their first love, but 20 did not. Let's flip it so that the majority is is unrepentant. 30 don't repent, 20 do. Will God let those 20 be lumped into judgment with the 30? No. They repented. They went back individually to doing what they were called to do. God doesn't judge that. He rewards that obedience. Um, Stephanie is asking on Facebook, can a spouse miss out due to the other spouse's disobedience? It depends on what you mean by that, Stephanie. For example, uh, God still is looking at you and your spouse as individuals. So your spouse can go to hell while you go to heaven. Your salvation does not rest on your spouse's serving God. You can be saved. The Bible says um, in the end times, that two will be sleeping in bed. One will be taken and the other left. Which shows you, as I heard one preacher point out, that they were married, because if they were unmarried sleeping together, they'd both be left. One will be taken, the other left. Which means one was serving God, the other was not serving God. So in the point of salvation, uh, your your spouse cannot define your salvation covenant. Uh, Then there are other things. If your spouse is leading your family in a sinful direction, a rebellious direction, you have a free choice and a free will to not follow that leading. Wives are only to be submitted to their husbands in as much as their husbands don't lead them to rebel against the word of God. 
If your husband's leading you to rebel against the word of God, you're not required to follow his leading. Same with the government. We're supposed to live in all peacefulness and uh, as much as possible, as much as possible with the government, do what we should, until the government starts opposing what God's called us to do, like attend church and sing to our God, like they're trying to do right now. At that point, you move out of Romans 13 and you go to Acts 5.29. We must obey God rather than man. And God rewarded his people all throughout the Bible for that kind of rebellion. Rebelling against the wicked mandates of a government. And so that's an excellent question, Stephanie. I would say this. You know, you say, well, my husband's not saved. He doesn't want me to tithe. Doesn't want me to give to our church. You're going to have to have some kind of a conversation with Uh, And maybe you work your own job and maybe you make your own money and you say to your husband, hey, listen, you can do what you want with your money. With the money I make, I'm tithing because I'm a Christian. I'm giving out of my income. I refuse to rebel against. And if your husband truly loves you and sees your uh, um, conviction to follow God, he'll understand that you feel that you have to obey the Lord. But you have to make a decision to obey God's word. I'm not doing what we used to do. I'm not getting drunk anymore with you. I'm not going out to the clubs with you anymore. I'm not going to the bar with you anymore. I'm not living the way we used to live. I'm not letting that stuff gonna ha- happen in my house. See? Yeah, Kim, Kim Hughes makes a great point. Being equally yoked is so real this year. 2020, you better believe it. You better be equally yoked. But that's a great question, Stephanie. And so here's my... Here's my conclusion to this whole thought. God is not judging America as a nation. Let me, let me make a couple extra points here to help you. Think of this. We dealt with consequential judgment. Seed time and harvest. So catch this thought. Who was the nation that for 200 years sent the most missionaries around the world to see revival hit the nations of the world? America. America. And you think we sowed all that seed to the nations of the world and that we don't have a harvest coming back to us of revival and salvation and a move of God? Is God going to let that seed fall to the ground and have no harvest come back? If he did, he's a liar. Because as long as the earth remains, there'll be seed time and harvest. And I'll deal with this because one final thought that I want to give you is that in Matthew 13... There is God's desire about how he deals with judging wicked people among righteous people. Listen to this. It starts, Matthew 13, verse 24. He put another parable before them saying, The kingdom of heaven can be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, the enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, the wheats, the wheat and the weeds appeared together. And the servants of the master of the house came and said, Master, did you sow good seed in your field? How does it have weeds? He said, an enemy's done this. And they said, well, do you want us to go and gather them? He said, no, don't gather the weeds right now. You'll destroy the wheat. Let them grow up together. Let me tell you what's happening right now. The wheat and the weeds are growing up together right now. We're the wheat. Every wicked person on this earth is the weeds. But notice what the master does. He said, don't gather the weeds and root up the wheat along with them. 
Let both grow together until the harvest. And at a harvest time, I'll tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them into bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Notice they're separated at the harvest time, the rapture. You don't burn the weeds while the wheat is still with them. Why would you destroy your own harvest? God's not a fool. God's not a fool. See? And so you don't burn the weeds with the wheat. God's not burning the weeds, the wheat with the weeds today. Not doing it in California. He's not doing it in America. He's not doing it in any of the 50 states around the world. God doesn't judge the righteous. He doesn't let his judgment fall upon the righteous. And then let me say this. This nation, more than any other nation, has been a friend to Israel. We've been a friend. Our current president has been more of a friend to Israel than many in the past. Many. He didn't just say it in word, we're going to be the greatest friend and ally Israel has. He's done it indeed. Indeed. God said, I will bless those that bless you. Genesis 12. I will bless those that bless you. I will curse those who curse you. We have not cursed Israel. We have stood with them. We've been their ally. We've been their friend. We've helped them. We've honored them. And let me tell you something. God honors those who honor his people. God honors those who honor his people. I agree with Korah. If every believer could just see the Israel aspect, they'd know who to vote for. Better believe that's right. We have been a blessing to Israel. We've been an ally to Israel. God blesses those who bless his children, his people, Israel. God's, let me encourage you. God's not judging America. Can he judge the wicked? Yes. But he's not judging nations right now. You don't see it in the New Testament. You don't see it in the Greek language. You don't see it in the stories. You don't see it in the warnings. You don't see it in the inspired scripture. He's judging individuals. He's dealing with the hearts of men and women. And you might be watching me today and you're not serving the Lord. You somehow logged onto this broadcast. Maybe you're watching the replay or listening to the podcast. Let me encourage you today. Today is the day of salvation. If you are not ready for heaven, watching this or listening, Let me lead you in a prayer of salvation so you can be ready when Jesus comes. Pray this with me. Father, in Jesus' name, thank you for sending your son to die for me. Forgive me of my sin. Make me new. Give me the power to live for you for the rest of my life. I confess Jesus is Lord. I believe you raised him from the dead. From this day forward, I'm a new creation. If you prayed that prayer with me, Go to MiracleWord.com, click on the I Just Got Saved button. I want to send you a gift, give you something to help you start your journey living for Christ and help you be discipled by the power of God. Those of you that are watching today, it's encouraging to know God's not judging our nation, but he is standing for his righteous people. He's blessing his righteous people. And the blood of Jesus Christ is on the doorpost of our home. We're preaching the gospel message all around the world tomorrow. I'm going to be preaching in over 180 nations through a television network that's out of Pakistan. Touching, praying, calling people to Jesus, praying for healing. I want to give you an opportunity to sow. Those of you watching today, maybe you've not done that. Maybe you've never taken a step of faith to push the gospel forward. Take a step of faith today. 
Sow a seed by faith. Watch what God will do in your life. Watch the harvest that comes back. The information's on the screen. You can go to miracleword.com, click the give tab. There's many ways to give. You can do it right on the website. Sow a one-time seed. You can set up a monthly seed you'd like to sow and partner with us. Do what the Lord tells you. Cash app is available, Venmo, PayPal, even hashtag donate in the comments. Right now. Amen, Alicia. Thank you. No, this is not a replay normal. This is normal human. (laughs) This is live. And so I'm excited because God's moving all over the earth. The gospel is being preached. People are being saved and changed by his power. And you're a part of it. You're a part of pushing this gospel forward throughout the whole earth. And I say thank you. Carolyn and I love and appreciate you. Thank you to people that are standing with us in partnership. We're asking God to send us people that'll believe for a nation to be saved, for nations to be changed, for a generation to be turned around. And so I'm believing God. If the Lord speaks to you, be one of those. Step out by faith. Imagine what you could do. Let's say that you just bought coffee every morning going to work at Starbucks, as they say here, Starbucks or Dunkies. Whatever you, Steve, what's an average Dunkin's latte? $3, $4? Four bucks. Same at Starbucks. $4, $3. Imagine if just on your work days, five days a week, you took coffee money, put it into the gospel. Let's say you put four bucks, that's $20 a week, that's $80 a month. What if you could stand and say, I could sow coffee money into the kingdom every month. I could sow $80 a month, 85 bucks a month. Imagine, you say, well, that doesn't seem like a lot, but imagine when you do it and people are changed by the power of the Holy Ghost. We're feeding hundreds of children around the world every single day, every day, making sure they eat and hear about the love of Christ. You're helping us do that. And so we say, thank you. You're standing with us. We're standing with you. We're praying for you. Let me say this. If you'd like to text me, you're welcome to text me. Go to my website, miracleword.com forward slash text. If you fill out the form, you can put your information right in my phone. We can stay connected via text message. I can talk to you. You can talk to me. You can send me your prayer request. I can pray for you and text you back. I want to hear from you. Go to miracleword.com forward slash text. Fill that out. Let me hear from you. Love you very much. Listen, if you haven't got your kids involved in Miracle Word Kids yet, we've got a brand new mission for the month of October. We're taking your children through the fruit of the Spirit, teaching them the importance of the nine fruit of the Spirit. And it's going to be a massive blessing for your kids. It's all free. Everything is free. All of it. All you got to do is go to MiracleWordKids.com, fill out the little form. They'll send you all the resources. Won't cost you a dime. We want to see your kids blessed and encouraged and increasing in faith. I love you guys so much. I'm going to be back again tomorrow, 10.30 a.m. Tonight I'm preaching here at Crossroads Community Church, 7 p.m. Revival's on, man. Revival's on. We're here till Friday night, 7 o'clock every night. Get here to the church. All the information's on the website, miracleword.com. Schedule. Look at it. Get the address, get the times, get here. If there's no way that you can possibly get to the church, we're streaming live every night. Facebook, YouTube, Periscope, Twitter. And you can watch the service live. We want you to be a part. I love it. I can't wait to see you. 
It's going to be a great night. It's going to be a great day. I'm hoping tomorrow that uh, my wife Carolyn will be back on the broadcast with me. And um, she's got the kids with us. We're, we're, she's still homeschooling. So getting the kids back on track with homeschools, we're starting a new semester. But let me say this. For everybody that's sowing seed, $85 or more partnering with us, we're going to send you Lester Summerall's book, Adventuring with Christ. One of the most exciting books to read. His life story, how he went around the world, met and studied under Howard Carter, uh, Smith Wigglesworth. Powerful book. It's an amazing read. It'll build your faith. It's our gift to you. For everybody that's sowing largely $1,000 or more this month, we're including with that my brand new book in the limited edition hardcover, Further Faster, and a life application study Bible in genuine leather. That's our way to say thank you. We love you guys so much. Thanks for hanging. Appreciate you being all with me today. You ought to lift your hands and thank God that God's not judging America. He's blessing this nation. He's blessing the nations around the world. Why? Because the people of God are calling out to him, praying. It might be getting darker for the world. It's not getting darker for us. It's getting brighter. Hallelujah. Jesus' mighty name. I love you. Have a great day. And I'll talk to you again tonight and tomorrow morning. See you soon. Later. Now that's the stuff leaders should be made of.